Again, I invite you to take your Bibles and open to the Gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 14. As I was studying this week, I went home one afternoon and was talking to Carrie, and I said, being back in Mark, it's like seeing an old friend again, right? And she looked at me and she goes, we're still in Mark? <laughs> Thanks, honey. Right. Uh, we are concluding our time here in the next uh, several weeks in Mark 14, 15, and 16. Uh, it's hard to believe that we've worked our way through this with uh, several breaks in there with with different things, but we are we are on the home stretch. The rest of the Gospel of Mark here is the uh, the arrest, the trial, the crucifixion, and subsequent resurrection of Jesus. So this is kind of um, the concluding section. Here is uh, the uh, resur- our crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus, and and everything leading up to that. And so we'll we'll start that this morning. If you would, let's pray together. Father, thank you again for the opportunity to be here and to worship you. And as we've sung, Lord, that you would sanctify us in brightest day or darkest night. Lord, use the things that we enjoy, Lord, but also use the things that are difficult in our lives to chip off the edge, to smooth out the rough, Lord, to help us become humble, loving, gentle, self-controlled, disciplined, kind, loving, merciful. Lord, help us to grow in these areas as believers in Jesus Christ. Ultimately, Lord, so we can proclaim the goodness of Christ in the gospel. Lord, be at work in us. Lord, we pray now in your word that you would use it to make us more like Christ. We pray in his name. If you find a way to Mark 14, it's page 850 in the Pew Bible. I'll read verses 1 through 11 of Mark 14. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was at Bethany, in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at a table, A woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was this ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me, for you always have the poor with you. And whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. When they had heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity betray him it's interesting the more and more you get to know people and people from different walks of life and different backgrounds you come to realize how different we can all view the same thing how differently we can have uh, a, a view on something or a perspective and i'm not talking about great philosophical ideas i'm talking about something very small like post-it notes 
I had a bunch of extra post-it notes in my office and in my desk, half, half chunks and random uh, political people on them or chemical companies or, or you know, seed hybrids, you name it. And I'm like, I didn't need all these. In fact, I don't like them. I like a clean post-it note. And there were just some random ones. And so what did I do? I took them and I just threw them in the trash can. Great, fantastic, wonderful. And then there's a certain other pastor of our church terminated nameless, not to incriminate anyone, walked into my office and was talking to me, and my trash must have been full because he saw those post-it notes, and he said, what do you do with those post-it notes? I said, oh, they're just extras and little chunks, and so I don't want them. I just threw them away. He's like, can I have them? And I said, I threw them away. He said, that's fine. And before I knew it, he was elbows deep in my trash can pulling out the extra post-it notes. Now, this is not to incriminate that other pastor, but it is to demonstrate how we view things differently. My perspective, these were just extra post-it notes, didn't need them, so I just threw them away. They're just post-it notes. There were things I got free at the 4th of July parade, things like that. Well, Pastor James saw them and thought, all right, I can always use more post-it notes and use this around here or there or there, you name it. How many of you men have a pile of scrap wood somewhere in a garage or behind your house? Okay, thank you for your honesty, right? How many times do your wives tell you, why do you have that? Just get rid of that, okay? Often. And then there's that one time, Tom, when you find that one piece of wood that works just perfectly and you're, you're totally validated, you know, for keeping that piece of wood for 13 years, something like that. We can view something and we think, oh, that's just trash, I don't need it. Or well, I don't know when I might need it. Or it might be useful, right? And some of you have, have grown up through different times when things were a little leaner, and so you didn't throw things away. While some of you just have a, a different perspective of, I'll just go and, and get a new one or, or something like that. You never know when you might need it or it might be valuable or you need to keep it. The way that we view things uh, is really interesting. We can have varying perspectives. Something that should be discarded, something that should be saved, something that is, is dispensable. We, it's, it's not that important. We can just get, get a new one. Or something that is useful and should be used. In this passage, in Mark 14, we see three different responses, three different perspectives on who Jesus is. And very much like something that one might look at and discard, or one might think is a piece of junk, somebody else looks at and says, no, that's valuable. We have three different perspectives looking at Jesus. One, he's a problem. One, he's, he's just a means to an end. And then the third is, no, 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 he's one to be worshipped. So as we come to this passage this morning, we think of betraying Jesus, using Jesus just for our own ends, or worshipping him. Our big idea is this, is that our response to Jesus reveals how we view the sovereign plan of God in redemption. How we view Jesus, our response to Jesus and how we view him, it shows what we think of God's sovereign plan in redemption, of, of his whole plan of sending Jesus and who Jesus is and, and what Jesus is for and what he's doing. It reveals how we view this plan of God. As we remember where we're at in the gospel of Mark here, from the very beginning, there have been many responses to Jesus. Some people are afraid and want him to leave. Remember when Jesus cast the, the, the demons into the swine from that man, 
the man wants to follow Jesus. And everyone else in that area, what do they tell Jesus? Leave. (laughs) Get out of here. You have the Pharisees from the very beginning in Mark 3 and the other religious leaders want to arrest Jesus and punish him and be done with him while you have crowds coming to him for food, for seeing a miracle, to be healed, but yet you have some coming for selfish reasons. Then you have others who view Jesus as one who should be king. How many times in the gospel of Mark does Jesus do a miracle and then he tells the person to tell no one? Why is that? Because the crowds would want this one who is the Messiah to come and to overthrow Rome and they just view him as a political figure, not as the Lamb of God to take away our sins. They just want somebody to make life easier by throwing off the shackles of Rome rather than a savior to follow. We have all these different responses. The religious leaders. We have the disciples themselves who are confused. And then we have those people who just seem to get it. And in this passage, we have a woman. There are those who are paralyzed. There are even Gentiles who realize who Jesus is in this whole unfolding of the gospel of Mark. But as we come to this passage here, we're going to look at these three different groups, three different responses, and how they view Jesus, and how it's a warning to us, and how maybe we fit in one of these groups in viewing Jesus in a wrong way. So let's look here at Matthew 14, verses 1 to 11. And the first group we're going to look at are the religious leaders. And they view Jesus as a problem to get rid of. So our first point is a problem to get rid of. So here we are in Mark 14. We've just walked through all this teaching of, of the return of Jesus and, and all those things. And now we're, we're a few days out from the Passover. In Mark 14, verse 1, it is now two days before the Passover and the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. And what Mark does here is classic Mark. Mark, I think he must have worked at Subway because he loves to make sandwiches. What I mean by that is several times in Mark's gospel, he'll have one section and another section that relate to each other, and then sandwiched in the middle is another section. So you look here in Mark 14, verses 1 and 2, you have the religious leaders wanting to kill Jesus, and then you go down to verses 10 and 11, and you have Judas basically delivering Jesus to these religious leaders. That's one thought, one idea. But sandwiched in the middle of those is this, uh, this illustration, this event of this woman pouring this oil or this ointment on Jesus. But he does this to contrast. Usually those outside layers, the bread you could say, contrast what's in the middle. And really we see that here. So a problem to get rid of, Mark 14. It was two days before the feast of Passover or Passover and the feast of unleavened bread. This was a celebration in the history of Israel of the Exodus, of coming out of Egypt. We're very familiar with that when uh, God, through Moses, warns Pharaoh that the tenth and final plague will be the death of the firstborn. And those who take the blood of a lamb and spread it over the doorpost, that house would be spared. This passing over, this deliverance, really it's a, it's a wonderful picture of God's sacrifice Uh, his plan of redemption, but also judgment on the firstborn, full of imagery, 
pointing forward to Jesus. And then the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which many believe uh, communicates that idea of, of not having um, yeast, which is that leavening agent that would picture sin. It's the idea of coming out of Egypt. And so you have the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking to arrest him by stealth and kill him. These individuals, these chief priests and scribes, these were the elite, the aristocratic rulers of the nation, more than likely Sadducees, members of the Sanhedrin. And they wanted to arrest him and kill him. It's very clear how they view Jesus. They view Jesus as a problem to get rid of. Because not only did they want to arrest him, but they wanted to kill him. They wanted to, in a sense, exterminate him. But it's interesting, they wanted to arrest him by stealth. Why? Verse 2, for they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. The city of Jerusalem and the surrounding villages would have been just swollen with people for these feasts, for this celebration. People would have come from all kinds of towns and villages to Jerusalem the surrounding areas. And these people would have heard of Jesus and have known Jesus. They would have maybe been witness to his miracles and his healings. And the chief priests and scribes, they're, they're no fools. They know that if they make this big spectacle of arresting Jesus, there'd probably be a mob riot that would ensue because Jesus was loved by the masses, by the masses. And so they were looking for a way to quietly arrest him and kill him. This communicates the fact that they viewed Jesus as a problem. They viewed him as a threat to their position. They viewed Jesus as a threat to their little niche that they had, right? They were buddy-buddy with Rome. You know, they weren't necessarily best friends, but they respected Rome. Rome gave them a position. They had the power, the control. They liked where they were at. They didn't want Jesus coming in and upsetting the apple cart. They didn't want Jesus coming in to make things difficult. They didn't want this backwater preacher coming in and changing everything and causing a riot and seeking to overthrow the government that they have set up. They wanted to protect their position and power in the eyes of Rome because if they couldn't keep Jesus under control, Rome would come down with an iron fist. Jesus was a rock in their shoe. He was a thorn in their side. He was a problem that they just wanted to get rid of. And they were looking for a way to quietly arrest him and kill him. And that's how Mark introduces this section. Now we jump down to verse 10, and we read of one of Jesus' disciples. Judas Iscariot, who is one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. Many of the other... Are, the other Gospels flesh this out a little bit more in different ways, but Mark just cuts right to the chase. Judas was one of Jesus' disciples, and he wanted to betray him. There's been a lot of thought on why Judas would want to betray him. Was it something in his own attitude or spirit? Was Satan tempting him? It's one of those things you look at and it says, all these factors I'm sure played together. And in God's sovereign plan, Judas wanted to betray Jesus. And so he went to the chief priests to betray him. Verse 11, and when they heard it, they were glad. 
think of that. These chief priests, these rulers, these elders, Judas comes into their midst. He says, I can arrange a way in which you can arrest him quietly. And they were glad. Why were they glad that they could kill Jesus? Because he was a problem to get rid of. Just be done with. Just to throw away. In our house in Minnesota, we had mice in it often. Uh, when we sought to arrest the mice, we sought to arrest and kill them, to get rid of them. <laughs> they were a problem that needed to be done away with. And so we did lots of different things. Traps, sticky traps, little bags of poison, all that stuff to get rid of the mice. They were a problem we just wanted out. And we were really, at one point, ready just to do, you know, what, where do we start need to screw in boards into the wall? Like, how are they getting in? Uh, eventually, we were able to get that taken care of, but they were a nuisance. They were annoying. They, you know, caused my wife a lot of heartache because we couldn't just watch, wash one dish. We had to wash them all. They were in the cabinets, right? So we wanted them gone, done away with, just out of our minds. Jesus is like that to the religious leaders. He was a problem, a nuisance, an annoyance, and they wanted him gone. And they were glad when Judas came with an opportunity to betray him. They heard it. They were glad in verse 11, and they promised to give him money. So here we read of G, or Judas accepting this promise of money for the betrayal of G, Jesus. We know that Judas was not the most upright individual. He was greedy, like to siphon off from the bag from the other disciples. And here's a great opportunity for him to really fix a problem and get paid doing it. And so we read in the end of verse 11 that he saw an opportunity to betray him, betray Jesus. Between the religious leaders and Judas, they saw Jesus as a problem to rid themselves of. And in Judas's case, to make a profit. And this agreement between these two groups will continue to be working in the background as we move to the arrest of Jesus. And we think of their attitude. We can think, how, how could they have that attitude towards Jesus? But yet for those who do not know Christ as their Savior, Jesus is often viewed as a problem to get rid of. He's a nuisance. Perhaps you are here, and Jesus is someone who makes things difficult for you. And you'd rather get rid of him than believe in him. You'd rather ignore him than submit to him. Perhaps you're here because someone invited you or a loved one drags you along. And I think this is the same attitude that you would have towards Jesus. Ah, Jesus is just a nuisance in your life. If he wasn't in my life, it would be so much easier. If he was gone, life would be pleasant. I wouldn't have to think about sin and hell and punishment. I could live however I wanted to. But because of Jesus... Ah. But we know the end of these individuals. We know the ends of one who want to get rid of Jesus. Judas was overcome with his selfish action and he committed suicide. The religious leaders would soon be displaced by the, the government of Rome, by other rulers. But ultimately, Jesus remains. He is the one who can never truly be done away with, even though 
If you do not believe in Christ, you just want to get rid of him and not think about him. He's there and he will always be there. And even as a believer, there have been times in my life when I even thought, man, this would be easier if I didn't believe in Jesus. Right? My own sinful thinking at a moment of despair or being overcome by circumstances. Ugh. But yet, He's not a problem to get rid of. He is not a problem to get rid of. Perhaps you're here this morning and you view Jesus as someone who's just a means to an end. Is he a promoter to fix issues? That's our our second group here. A promoter to fix issues. In the middle of this section, we have verses 3 through 9. And this account is well known. It's, uh, It's recorded in... Uh, Matthew's gospel, and uh, many think that it is also recorded in John's in a different place. Uh, And there's another one in Luke. It's a different time, but something very similar happens. But they are in Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, probably a former leper, uh, somebody who may have been healed by Jesus. Um, And he was reclining at a table. The he was Jesus. He was reclining at a table. The tables in the first century were low tables. We might almost think of them almost like a coffee table. And they would have pillows and cushions, and they would recline, lean on an elbow, um, up to the table to eat. And so they're sprawled out there enjoying a meal. And as he was reclining, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard. So it'd be a, a, a small flask made of alabaster, and it was an ointment, so kind of like a lotion or an oil. It was a liquid of pure nard. Now, nard is maybe not the best, you know, uh, marketing term for something that would smell good. Like nard and smelling good don't really go together. But nard is the term of this this oil or this ointment that was produced from a plant. And it it smelled wonderful. It was a a wonderful smell. And it was very costly, Mark records for us. And so here is this perfume, you could say, this this lotion or ointment that was used to, uh, on ceremonial ways, it was used to anoint the dead for burial, it was used by the rich as perfume, It it was very costly. And she took this flask, some would take this to mean as her, in a sense, kind of reckless abandon, kind of a, I'm doing this, and I broke the flask, others view would, would understand that this would be so expensive that that was the only way to open it, that it would be encased in this flask and you would have to break it to open it. Whatever the case, we know that she breaks it and she pours it over his head. Think of this. Here is Jesus reclining at the table, eating a meal, probably talking, teaching, interacting with others, and this woman comes in, unannounced, more than likely, Uh, She was at the party, uh, welcomed at the party, but they didn't know she was doing this. She would break the flask and pour this on Jesus' head. When's the last time you were at a party and somebody walks in with a wonderful bottle of shampoo and puts it on your head? Some of you, like me, would think, I only need this little much of shampoo. That's a little bit too much, right? In our days, we'd be like, whoa, what's what's going on? We, We don't... That, that's, that's weird. And even in, in the first century, this was done often, but it was a more ceremonial sense, not reclining at a table at a meal. But yet this woman 
does this. And she pours this perfume over Jesus, over his head. And we read now of one response of some of the disciples there. Verse 4, there were some who said to themselves indignantly, angry, upset, annoyed. Why? Why was this ointment wasted like that? They think, oh, how could this happen? This is such a waste. What is she doing? They scolded her, it says. And what is the reason for their scolding? They said, for this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. 300 denarii would be almost a year's wages. That's like, that's like a salary, uh, a year's salary of, of an average individual. That's, that's pretty expensive. When's the last time you bought perfume you know, that costs thirty, forty, fifty, sixty thousand dollars. Probably never. Um, and they see this and they think, oh, what a waste. Because that could have been sold and given to the poor. Oh, what a what a righteous statement, right? Oh, look at your heart. <laughs> look at you. Oh man, you are so righteous. Nobody could say anything against that, right? You don't want to give money to the poor? Man, you're a terrible person. You must hate bunnies, you know? Who could say anything against that? Jesus does. Jesus does. Verse 8, but Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. This group of individuals that saw this woman doing this, they were just taken aback. And they said, how, how could this be happening, Jesus? What a, what a waste. We could have helped so many people with this money. We could have helped the poor. He remarks to these individuals that the poor, they will always have with them, and they can always do kind things or good for the poor. He says, but you will not always have me with you. Jesus helps put some things in order for us here. They view Jesus as someone who has just come to promote something for them. A promoter to fix issues, right? And that was the case all along through the Gospel of Mark. He told, Jesus told people, don't tell others about me because they just want to make me a ruler or to make me king or to provide free food. He goes, I'm doing these things to show you that I am the Son of God. I'm not here just to fix your problems. And in a sense, these disciples are saying, oh man, we could, have, we could have used that for our ministry to the poor. As if that's the end-all, be-all ministry with Jesus. Jesus says, no. The poor you will always have with you. This issue of poverty is a result of sin and its effects in the world or around us. Almost since the beginning of creation, poverty has existed. And though it's good to seek to undo poverty, it will always exist truly until Jesus comes back. Because in a sinful world where things are broken down, you have people who exploit other people. You have the ground which does not give forth fruit as best as it can because of the curse. You have difficult circumstances in the world around us because of sin. Poverty and the poor will always be with us. There's no amount of money or effort put forth from individuals that can completely overcome the issue. Now, that doesn't mean we don't meet the needs of people where they're at around us, or we seek to live sacrificially for those in need. Jesus is not saying to neglect those 
who are less fortunate than others, but rather in this case, something more important is the recipient of this perfume. Keep the right perspective. Jesus and following Jesus is more than just fixing issues. These disciples were focused on the social issues and difficulties that were facing the people that they saw, that Jesus ministered to. But the point is, something greater is here. And something greater than helping the poor or healing the sick is happening. Redemption for man and all creation is coming. Listen to this. This author says this. Jesus' point here is this. You can and should help the poor anytime at all. But something more important is at work here. This is a striking reminder of the uniqueness and significance of Jesus' coming. Marking the arrival of of the eschatological salvation, the beginning of redemption. Jesus has not come simply to heal the sick and feed the poor. He is here to defeat sin, Satan, and death, to inaugurate the kingdom of God. And poverty is a symptom of a much greater problem, the fallenness of humanity and all creation. His answer, his response, represents the inauguration of God's final salvation that it should be a time of extravagant joy and worship, not solemn mourning. Lavish acts like the pouring out of this expensive perfume signify the extravagance of God's grace at the dawn of salvation. It's good to help the poor and to meet those needs, but ultimately the greatest need that anybody has is Jesus. And Jesus says, I am here. She has done something good. I'm not here just to fix the problems for the problems you will always have until I truly come back and make everything right. Jesus is not a commodity. He's not a means to an end. He's not a promoter or a celebrity to garner support and raise funds to address issues. You know that, right? Turn on any commercial. Why do they pay a celebrity to be in a commercial? Because he is somebody you know, you like, and they like that too. So in that case, I'm going to buy that. We can view Jesus that way sometimes. Here's Jesus. He's awesome. He can fix your problems. You should follow Jesus. Or Jesus, because of this, I'm going to do this and fix all the issues here. It's not wrong to do good works in the name of Jesus. We're, we're called to do that as believers. But that's not the end-all, be-all. That's not what's most important. He is not a promoter to fix issues. But lastly, he is a person to be worshipped. The third response here is of the woman. You have the religious leaders in Judas who see Jesus as a problem to be fixed. You have these indignant disciples and individuals who view Jesus as a means to an end, somebody to promote it, to fix the issues of the world around them. But here is this woman. This third response is that Jesus is one to be worshipped. We aren't told her name here in the Gospel of Mark, but many suspect it could be Mary of the Mary Martha Lazarus family. But her act of breaking the flask and anointing Jesus is one that's to be remembered, which in verse 9, Jesus talks about. She has done a beautiful thing. Look at verse 6. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. I love that phrase. She has done a beautiful thing to me. That word beautiful is the idea of good, upright, kind, everything as it should be. 
beautiful. She has done a good thing, a beautiful thing to me. For you will always have the poor with you. And whenever you want, you can do good for them. It's almost as if, you know what, disciples, why are you so concerned right now with helping the poor when the other day you weren't concerned about it? It's kind of that idea. She says, but you will not always have me with you. Verse 8, she has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. She has done a beautiful thing, a thing that is good, right, and true. She has done what she could do, insinuating that she had little but this one expensive thing, and this was the only way that she could think of expressing her love and devotion and worship to Jesus. Think of saving up the money to buy that, to have this possession of great value, but yet she says, it's yours, Jesus. It's yours. Have you ever saved up for something so long and, oh, you finally have the opportunity to purchase it and it's, it's yours, right? And you treasure it, right? And you don't want to let it go. You just want to hang on to it. You don't want other people to, to, to touch it, right? I'm a little OCD like that sometimes. I spend the money to buy something and it's mine. And especially when it's like opening up the first time. Not going to lie, Pastor James put up the projector yesterday and he said, I'm going to do this. And part of the inside of me said, but I want to do it right? Because I, uh, with some help, found it and ordered it and got it here. And, and I'm, I'm glad he was able to. It worked out great. But inside of me, it's like, but, but I, I, want to, I want to be the one to open up the box and lay everything out, make sure it's all there and it's okay. It's like my, my controlling side coming out there. It, it was something that I wanted to hold close. But yet here, this woman, this thing that was very, very valuable, she just breaks and gives to Jesus. It was the response that she had in worshiping him. Anything that she had, she gave it all to him. And Jesus implies that she anointed his body for burial. Now, I don't think that she knew what he was talking about. But Jesus, understanding where he was going, makes the statement. She didn't do it thinking, oh, Jesus, you're going to be betrayed and die in a few days. And so this is a symbolic act. No, she did this. And Jesus makes the comment. And this foreshadowing anoints him for his upcoming death. Her act is one motivated by love for who Jesus is. She did not see him as a means to an end. She saw him, rightly so, as the Messiah, the anointed one, worthy of all worship, of sacrifice and complete devotion, of worshiping him for who he is, not only because of what he does. Far too often in the world today, we like someone because of what they do for us. We like someone because what we can get from them, of how valuable or worthy or useful they are. But when it comes to worshiping Jesus, yes, he does the amazing thing for us, what only he can do, but yet we are called to worship him for who he is, as a person, as an individual. Jesus is an individual, one to be worshipped. He is fully God and fully man. Not because of only what he does, but because of who he is as a, as a person. Jesus is to be worshipped. I was challenged with it this week. Do, do I worship what I think about Jesus or do I worship Jesus himself? It's easy for us to think about what Jesus does and give thanks, rightly so. But we are called to worship him as he is, a person who we can relate to, who we can 
communicate to and have fellowship with and know one day we will see face to face. It's the difference between knowing about someone and knowing someone. My prayer is that we know Jesus and not just know about Jesus. To seek to know him more each day. That's what Paul says. He says, I strive, I press on that I might know him and the power of his resurrection. It's not this this mystical sense of, of finding out secret information, but rather it's setting our heart and devotion upon Christ and who he is in his word that we read to think, "Ah, I know you, and yet I don't know you, and I can keep learning more about you and learning who you are, Christ. And we can see here how Jesus then is the fulfillment of God's great grand plan of redemption, that he is, yes, not only a savior, but he is the son of God who is to be worshiped. So as we start the home trek here in the Gospel of Mark, to ask ourselves this question, what is our response to Jesus? And how does it reveal how we view God's plan of redemption? Is it just something that he's done for us? Or is it a gift of his own son? Do we view Jesus as a problem to be fixed or a problem to get rid of? Somebody who's a nuisance? Or do we view him as just a means to an end, to somebody who can help fix our issues or the issues of the world. Or he is one that we are called to worship, to bow the knee to. He's not a commodity or a thing. He's a person, one that we can know, one who has died for us, one who we can have a relationship with, and one that we will see face to face in the future. That we see Christ as he is, as one to be worshiped. Father, thank you for the opportunity to be here and to look at your word. Just the challenge and the reminder for us. Lord, we love you. We thank you for Jesus and all that he's done, but even more than that, just for who he is. The fact that you sent him, Lord, to take on humanity, to identify with us that we can know him in a personal way. It's not just what he does, but it's who he is as a person. Lord, thank you for Christ. Thank you. You've given us your word to know him, to have a relationship, and that we would love him as he loves us. We pray all this in his name. Amen.